Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 167, Hub of the Gay Universe. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Russ Lopez to discuss his recent book, The Hub of the Gay Universe, an LGBTQ history of Boston, Provincetown, and beyond. The book was published in April 2019, and I met Russ briefly at his author table at Boston Pride in June. I asked him to join us on the show sometime. He agreed, and then I promptly forgot to follow up. Six months later, we're finally correcting that, and Russ joins me to talk about Puritan attitudes toward sin and sodomy, the late 19th century golden age for LGBTQ Boston, the tragic toll of the AIDS crisis, and the long fight for marriage equality. Because I have an author interview, I'm skipping the Boston Book Club. But before I talk to Russ Lopez, it's time for this week's upcoming historical event. For our upcoming event this week, I'm featuring a throwback to episode 162, where I discussed the 1849 Supreme Judicial Court case that formed the legal basis for school segregation. On February 1st, a National Park Service ranger will be appearing at the Mattapan branch of the BPL to discuss that very case. Roberts v. Boston. Here's how the library website describes the event. Since its founding, Boston has had a strong focus on public education, but not everyone had access to the same education. A young girl of color named Sarah Roberts forced Bostonians to acknowledge this inequality when she and her father sued the city of Boston because of the evident inequity in the public education system. If you missed our show about Roberts v. Boston, and you'd like to learn how a case that was meant to end segregation in Boston public schools backfired and created the legal framework for Jim Crow, you'll want to check out this talk. It's scheduled for 1 p.m. on Saturday, February 1st, and it'll be held at the Mattapan Library on Blue Hill Ave. We'll have a link to more information in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 167. If you enjoy this week's interview, please consider supporting Hub History. For as little as $2 a month, you can help us offset the costs that come along with producing a podcast. Even a basic operation like this needs web hosting, security, podcast feed hosting, transcription services, and more. To learn how to support us and to see the rewards available at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels, check out patreon.com slash hubhistory or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the support link. And thanks again to everyone who already supports the show. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Dr. Russ Lopez has a background in urban planning, and he studies cities, neighborhoods, and the links between the urban environment and public health. He teaches at the BU School of Public Health, and he's published three books related to that field. When he's not busy studying, teaching, and writing about public health, He also researches the history of Boston. The Hub of the Gay Universe is the third book he's published in this area, following Boston South End and Boston 1945-2015. This new book traces the LGBTQ history of Boston and Provincetown from the moment the Pilgrims first encountered P-Town in 1620 to the referendum that put trans rights on the ballot in 2018. Dr. Russ Lopez, welcome to the show. Thank you for uh, interviewing me. So the book starts out 
with a sort of a very brief overview survey of the, the earliest years of English colonization in Massachusetts, and then it dives straight into the theme of LGBTQ history. Will you start us out by just telling us a little bit about the very complicated relationship the Puritans had with sexual temptation altogether, just in general, and then how that led them to what seems like a, a particularly harsh view of homosexuality? Yeah, it's actually um, their thoughts about homosexuality and sexuality in general actually much more nuanced than um, we kind of normally think of uh, Puritans and as such. First of all, they were trying to distinguish themselves from the rest of people in England. And Elizabethan England or whatever at that time was um, was actually the public was very... Um, it's going to ribald, I guess is the term they use. Um, you know, they were very much into pleasure. Uh, London was full of pubs and theater and all of these places where women and, and men mixed. So partly to distinguish themselves, they were say they were the sort of the anti-happy people, I guess. Um, and they very much thought that any kind of sex outside of marriage was completely wrong. And that included, of course, homosexuality. Um, but it was all kinds of sex. Anything that wasn't, you know, husband and wife focused was wrong. They did, and in that context of a marriage, they were actually were, were fine with things, right? Matter of fact, it was the duty of a, of a man and a woman in a marriage to have sex. They were, and they were actually supposed to enjoy it even. Mm -hmm. But anything outside that line was completely prohibited. From sixteen, at least from sixteen forty one, in the Body of Liberties, the act of sodomy was a capital crime. But it, it seems like they had a, a conception of "quote unquote" sodomy that was beyond just a sex act. Um, what made up the crime of sodomy in that that environment? Well, I think what's interesting from us is that they distinguished between the person and the act. In one sense, they thought anybody was capable of the act of sodomy, and everybody was tempted by the act of sodomy. Um, so that a person who was found sodomy, and you need two witnesses because it was a capital crime, a person who was found to be having sodomy was not marked as a person who had that tendency in them as being different. They were just, you know, one of the regular folks who had succumbed to, temp to temptation. So they very much distinguished between the person and the act. And any, the act was so bad in their eyes, they didn't quite really define it. So oftentimes they would be, the laws are very nebulous. They said, of course, that horrible act of sodomy without a great definition. Those fine, you know, thing of, of who put what where didn't <laughs> really pop up until the end of the 19th century because the Puritans thought it was such a bad thing that everybody, of course, knew what it was, but no one would say it. Right? That, not wanting to speak it out loud seems to have led to a situation where although you have this capital crime on the book, if if I read the book correctly, no one was actually executed for that capital crime. Is, is yes. that what you found? Yes. And that's to me, is also a very interesting thing because in England, they were executing people left and right for sodomy. And in Virginia, I think the number of people who were um, executed was in the dozens. But for some reason despite this very, very strong criminal sanctions against it, they really didn't, ex they did never 
executed anybody in the two colonies um, that made up Massachusetts, Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth Colony. I think it's because there was actually an element of mercy in the Puritan religion. It actually, this totally was outside the range of the book, but to me, I became fascinated by how they, how their religion was this mixture of tremendous condemnation of things and this also great amount of mercy. One of the themes to the book is actually how the Puritan religion changed over the years into the, what we now have are, you know, Unitarians and Congregationalists, who are the two most liberal Protestant yeah, uh, denominations we have. I always think of that same thing, that the, the church of John Winthrop and Cotton Mather is now, have the biggest rainbow flags in the Pride Parade. Absolutely. And what was it, right? And I think it was that element of mercy, right? They thought that everybody, if everybody's a sinner, everybody was also capable of redemption. So I don't think they wanted to execute anybody because then they would no longer be able to sort of redeem themselves. Now, they thought everybody was going to hell, so it didn't really make a difference in one sense, right? Only a, a few people were going to make it to heaven and everybody else would go to hell. So they still carried that, that element of mercy. And the only people they seem to have prosecuted anywhere in New England, um, Connecticut did actually put somebody to death, were people who also challenged the church. So that was as big of the crime as sodomy itself. They didn't really go after you, whatever you were doing, unspeakable as it might have been, as long as you obeyed church authority. Then, once you make that next step, then they crack down. But they still didn't kill you. They st- you know, they had these other punishments. And it might have been sort of lesser charges? Yeah, yeah. Not so much, again, the, I guess going all the way, you might say, but they would just sort of uh, prosecute you for, you know, heavy petting, I guess you'd say, rather than doing the whole thing. A side effect of, of this sort of sexual repression, the view of, of any sort of temptation as being a sin, including uh, same-sex temptations, is that there's very little evidence to reconstruct people's lives from for you for a historian in the book a lot of what you have to reconstruct people's lives from are records of trials uh did you have any way any evidence to build a picture of what just day-to-day life for somebody who might we might consider lgbtq was like um aside from a trial yeah that was actually a big problem relative to other places for example in new york there were um they had the police do extensive sort of, you know, investigations into gay subculture at various points of time. And that's today is a great trove of information for Massachusetts and Boston. Because they were, I guess, already more liberal in a sense, there were no, there was never any big police reporting investigation kind of thing. So we really don't have any information on folks really until, well, into, you know, the 1800s, when we start to get letters and kinds of things to each other. Um, it does make it very difficult. But what you can tell just from the investigations and from the police reports um, are two things. One is that there already seems to be an extensive, I guess you have to use the word underground, but an extensive sort of sub-society of folks who are into these kinds of things. They did sort of find each other, and they did sort of, you know, either friends or more than friends, right? Sort of this network, I guess you say. 
And also you find that there were people who were challenging gender roles from the very beginning. Through those prosecutions, right, you find men being arrested for going outside in women's clothes and women being arrested for wearing men's clothes. So you find people already challenging sort of gender norms from the very beginning of uh, European migration into North America. Unfortunately, it's all from arrest records, and these arrest records are not detailed. <laughs> right. Uh, tell a story that's sort of on the cusp between that very speculative era, sort of the early colonial era, and the 19th century, where we start to get a little bit more evidence. Sort of in the transition between those two, you talk about this kind of this tantalizing but vague story that's set in the free black community in Beacon Hill, the North Slope of Beacon Hill. Can you introduce our listeners to George Middleton and I think Louis Clapian? Clapian. Yeah, they were um, two men, two African-American men. One seems to have been born in um, Boston and the other one, we're not quite sure where. Middleton was actually a um, bigwig, I guess you'd say, in Boston, African-American society. Boston, Massachusetts, I should say was the first state to actually outlaw slavery. And they did it through a series of court cases right after the revolution. But you could see that they were already moving towards that because, again, there was a more liberal atmosphere. So Boston had attracted a lot of uh, free uh, black people. And Middleton actually was the head of a sort of a police or um, sort of a regiment of folks, of other blacks, that patrolled the streets that kept the order. Uh, they weren't, for whatever, re- for whatever reason, were in the Revolutionary Army itself, but they were left behind, and they were the ones who kept the peace in Boston. And in return for that, Middleton got a commendation from Sam Adams and all sorts of other things, and um, was considered quite the hero. He went on to also advocate for for education for African American folks, um, advocate for um, abolition, even already at that time. He also founded uh, a black Freemason society in Boston that is influential to this day. did a lot of great things. But he also lived with this other man, Clapian. And the two of them seemed to have spent their lives together. Middleton, when he died, his wife, they both got married. But that doesn't really mean much in those days. Middleton outlived his wife. They had no children. And then he actually gave his fortune, um, not a fortune, but whatever resources he had, he left it to a, a sailor, to a male sailor after he died. Um, they ran a um, hair salon, I guess you'd say, together on Beacon Hill, on what's now Pinkney Street. And so they seemed to have these intertwined lives that it's, it's a little difficult to figure out who's gay and who's not gay. Um, and we oftentimes hold people to a higher standard. I often use the example of um, this couple, this famous couple, who wrote thousands of letters to each other, um, were well-known, um, male and female couple, well-known as, as a couple. They never had children. We never questioned whether or not George or Martha Washington were straight or gay or whether they were having sex, right? But they never mentioned, you know, any kind of sex acts in their letters, right? But when we have two men who sort of live similarly very close lives, you know, unless somebody left a letter saying, you know, wow, didn't the um, 
Earthshake last night when we got into the trapeze together. <laughs> you know, unless we have that kind of evidence, someone says, well, we don't really know if they're gay or not. Well, you know, when you have two lives that are so intertwined and so, you know, regular together, you know, the, the, um, Clapian and, and Middleton actually bought a house together. We put the standard on them. You know, no one's going to leave a letter again about the trapeze, right? We don't ever, ever, ever. I mean, <laughs> maybe two or three people in the history of humanity, right? You know, um, as I also tell people, I've been with my husband now for 35 years, and there's, you know, except the fact that we have a marriage license, there's no physical evidence that we were a couple, right? We don't, we don't write emails to each other that would have, you know, incriminating evidence in them because we're just not that kind of people, right? You know. But when you look at the totality of what the information we have on these two African-American gentlemen, it really does seem like they were in a very, very supportive, emotional, close relationship. Let's put it that way. It does seem like an era when it could be really hard to parse that out because it it, it comes at a time when romantic friendship, this new concept, is changing masculinity. It's also changing how men can interact with each other, how men interact with, with women. I know even um, a decade or two before this, Abigail Adams and Thomas Jefferson wrote these really intense, emotionally seem like love letters, except they were both, well, Abigail at least was was happily married. Thomas Jefferson was doing his own thing. Recently popularized with the Hamilton musical, you have that the look into Hamilton and John Lawrence letters, this is like intense romantic friendship. So I can see where to be very hard to, how to be hard to differentiate between a romantic friendship and a romance. Yes. I mean, we have a, at that time, um, men would write letters to other men saying, you know, my dearest love and my heart beats when you show up and things like that, which in our mind would be like, boy, this is really kind of, you know, you know, out there, right? Uh, on the other hand, we began to have information on people by the, after the revolution so that we can look to see whether those letters are backed up by actual physical things together. It's one thing if you write a letter to your friend saying, you know, boy, I really, when I see you, I just get excited, you know, on and on and on. It's another thing um, in the book where you have two men who actually seem to, whenever this friend came and visited, Despite the fact that the one guy was married, um, they shared a bed together and the, the wife kind of felt left out. So, that seems to have a physical piece to it beyond this emotional piece. I mean, this goes all the way on. I mean, some of the stuff about, you know, Abraham Lincoln because he shared a bed with somebody for, you know, a couple of years. Right. That was right. pretty common, even that. Um, Beds were expensive, if nothing yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, again, it, it, when you start to try to piece together things... It really is sort of a detective thing, and it often comes down to impressions. That's the totality of what we know about people. Some of this, some of these things are very fleeting. You do get into, especially a little bit later in the book, even in cases where either the the people involved or their descendants have very deliberately tried to obscure the documentary evidence, where you do have diary entries, letters. Um, I think one of the earliest was. Uh, the earliest known names was Ralph Waldo Emerson. You said mm -hmm. he left behind documentary evidence of a, a crush at least. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't go on whether or not he was gay or not, right? That's not, you know. But certainly it's worth mentioning the fact that there was a, a man, or a young man, he was in uh, Harvard at the time, who was having, you know, 
crushes to the extent where he would describe following this, this object of desire around, hoping the man would turn around and look at him. That seems to be a step beyond just the standard formula of writing, you know, Dear, dearly beloved, it's nice to see you again. The fact of the matter that he went on to, you know, marry and everything else. Almost everybody got married, even into the 1950s. So, marriage itself is not a good piece of evidence either way. Though clearly if a man didn't, or a woman didn't marry, then it becomes a big thing. But you do see this, you know, these men and women in their diaries that sort of escaped their um, heirs um, purging of declarations of love that were beyond the step. And the fact that their executors and heirs and whatnot tried to purge the things is evidence that even contemporaries of them who would be used to men writing, you know, sort of platonic love letters to each other, thought that these particular items were beyond that line. Mm -hmm. So, the fact that people purged their letters or burned them or whatever, to me, is evidence that there was no concept of the word of a person being gay, but if they didn't consider these things being over the line, then they wouldn't have actually destroyed them. So much of the focus of our conversation so far has been on on the experience of gay men and this the extreme discretion that they had to use and, and how that can really muddy the historical record. You give an example, sort of a contrasting example of a woman who was incredibly flamboyant, had this sort of larger-than-life personality, and like you said, an era when marriage was just the absolute expected outcome for both sexes didn't go that route. Can you introduce the, the listener to Charlotte Cushman? Oh, boy. She is a woman. Charlotte Cushman is a woman that I would have loved to have met. She was just wild. She was uh, born in Boston. Mm-hmm. She sort of made up a backstory of herself that her father had abandoned the family and therefore she had to take to the stage. She started off as an opera singer, but her voice was not good for that. So she became an actress and she lived in the world on her own terms. She would have passionate, passionate, passionate affairs with other women, usually one or two at a time, two or three at a time, I should say. And while we may not have um, you know, all the information on uh, some of the other folks about whether they were really doing it or not, with Charlotte Cushman, oh, she left it in her letters, you know, the folks, <laughs> man, did we have a wild time last night, you know, I'm, st- I'm still catching my breath kind of thing. And she did her, started a career in the United States, went to London, um, lived for a time in, in Rome, um, encouraged a whole circle of women, sculptors and writers and everything else. And she would have affairs with them and she would do things with them. She pretty much was in several long relationships, usually, though, with other women on the side, sometimes with women who were 20, 30 years younger than her. And she just lived life to the fullest. What a fun person she must have been. <laughs> <laughs> was there something about the arts or women in the arts that let them, I guess, live more authentically? Because from the earliest days of English settlement in, in Massachusetts through at least the the mid or late 19th century, lesbians basically could fly under the radar of the dominant culture because the dominant culture just didn't acknowledge that women had any sexuality. Yeah, it actually made, in one sense, lesbians would have an easier time because 
the general society just thought that women didn't have sexual desire or experience sexual pleasure. So therefore, if two women were together, there'd be no thought that they were, you know, enjoying each other, right? Or having some sort of life right. together. If they, if they weren't sexual beings, how could they be having a sex life together? Exactly. Uh, on the other hand, there was tremendous economic and social discrimination against all women. And it was almost impossible for a woman to support herself economically. And oftentimes, women were controlled by the male relatives. Even if they inherited money, oftentimes, it was a male relative who had all powers of their of the purse strings. And some of the women that Charlotte Cushman had uh, affairs with, that was actually a problem because the women couldn't be free to be with Charlotte. Um, they're, they're guardians, really is what it was. These are adult women, but their guard, male guardians just wouldn't let them do that. There were very few options for women that could support themselves. One was the arts. They could, uh, like Charlotte Cushman, take to the stage. They could write books and become authors. And later on, there was the growing profession of social work. And then a few also became professors very late in the 19th century. And that was really it, that you couldn't just, you know, go work at a bank or go work uh, as a merchant. There, that was just something that women didn't do, um, unless it was on a very, very small scale, lower income women. Um, but if you were a middle class or above woman, you just didn't have any kinds of options that would allow you the freedom, either to live by yourself or to do whatever you wanted to do. Now, speaking of some of the other career paths, the, some of the other very few career paths that are open to women, you mentioned social work. And, and in the book, I guess maybe I had heard this before, but certainly hadn't connected the dots. It, it seems like quite a number of the women who were involved in the founding of, of Denison House, one of the early settlement houses in, in Boston in the, in the South End, were, at least by today's standards, might have been considered lesbians. They were. There's a whole group of women around Vida Scudder who was a economics professor, I believe. I could be wrong. At uh, uh, Wellesley College, Wellesley College was sort of a different example than other women's colleges at the time. Most of which were either offshoots of men's colleges, like like Radcliffe for Harvard, or else they were still all male faculty. Wellesley was sort of a college for women, run by women, with the added uh, restriction that these women were prohibited from marrying. So there quickly grew to be a sort of subgroup of lesbians, and they lived pretty prominently with their with the other women, um, uh, so that you know they they would have you know houses together and travel together and do things together. Um, and again, they were protected by that. Uh, idea of uh, uh, that women weren't having sex. So a group of women, uh, this was at the very beginning of the settlement house movement, the idea that you would have places that would take immigrants and help them with their issues of moving to urban areas in the United States. Uh, some of it was quite paternalistic, even though these were run by, Dennis House was run by women, and she could still call it paternalistic. Uh, you know, we had to teach those immigrants how to sweep the floors and, you know, keep their places clean and kinds of things. Uh, because these ideas that the immigrants didn't know any better, right? But also they would teach them English. They would, uh, uh, 
do job training, all sorts of social programs to sort of lift these folks out of poverty. And Denison House was a group of, one of a group of settlements founded by these Wellesley women. And, and it became quite the place in the South End, uh, which at the time was the largest immigrant neighborhood in Boston. Later on, Amelia Earhart worked there as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was her last stop before uh, fame and disappearance was yeah. Denison House as a social worker. <laughs> and what was, to me was also fascinating about this is that it allowed these lesbians to be independent, but also it was their introduction to society. So at the same time, you had Vida Scudder and her, and her friends running Denison House, you had this pillar of Yankee Protestant Boston, um, Robert Archie Woods, who founded South End House only a few blocks away. And you know, he is as conservative as can be. Um, and yet he is on a daily basis interacting with the lesbians at Denison House. The Starros, um, now we really only know James Starro for his, uh, for Starro Drive which is right. horrendous because actually his it, widow. He was <laughs> deeply opposed to building a <laughs> Right, right. Deeply opposed to that, right? But ironic, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, he is again a, a pillar of the Yankee establishment. He ran General Motors for a while. He was a banker to the wealthy. He was also famous for losing uh, the mayor's race to um, Honey Fitz, the grandfather of uh, President Kennedy. Again, he would open, he and his wife, Helen Starro, would open their house to lesbians and, and interact with them, and no one seemed to care. This is a period you describe as a, a golden age for yeah. lesbians in Boston. And, and also gay men. And, and it was very, very contained. You had to be Protestant. Uh, there was one woman who was Catholic who was shunned, even though she was of the same group. I mean, so you had to be white Protestant, sort of, you know, wealthy. We're not talking about Irish immigrants. We're not talking about poor um, Protestant uh, folks who moved from, let's say, Maine and Vermont, New Hampshire into Boston. A lot of them were doing that. But if you were part of that elite, you were you could go anywhere with your significant other, and you were accepted. And it was really it was a golden age. I mean, th there were. There were very strict standards, right? The women had to really make sure that they were not being overtly sexual. The men mm -hmm. couldn't live with their paramours. They would oftentimes build houses next door to each other rather than live with each other. But there was still this acceptance that really was probably, you know, uh, I'm not a complete scholar of the world, right? But, you, you know, between ancient Greece and, uh, you know, San Francisco in the 70s, right? Late 60s. That was probably the most liberal period of time in Western civilization um, for LGBT people. Um, you, you, I, quote I, a, you quote a doctor, a German doctor who'd come to the U.S. to study homosexuality in America. And he wrote, and how many homosexuals I've come to know? Boston, this good old Puritan city has them by the hundreds. <laughs> that's, I think, 1908. He's writing that. So that that's... Just before the decline of this golden age, I guess, but yeah, probably near the peak. It really went from maybe late 1870s. It's hard to say when it really started. And then the door slammed shut extremely hard and tight during World War One. And it wasn't all wonderful. A lot of, we have a lot of evidence that gay men just got annoyed living in Boston and left. Um, <laughs> there was a big exodus to Europe. 
particularly to even to England, though they were executing people there at the time, um, that that seemed to be a more liberal place. Um, but in a sense, it really was this golden age. And, and I wrote it with kind of a regret that what would have happened in, in an alternative universe instead of the, the terrible, terrible repression that happened in World War I, what would have happened if it had endured and began to include other folks, you know, the not so wealthy folks, people of other religions, and, you know, and then, you know, to other, you know, non-white folks, right? You really could have had this alternative world of acceptance, and there would have been, you know, thousands of people would have had, you know, much better lives, but it didn't happen. I mean, it, it again, this acceptance ended very strongly and, and violently. Of course, there would have been LGBTQ people who were in Boston at that time who weren't white, Protestant, wealthy. It just, they, it seems like they must have had to live less openly. Yeah. But even then, you know, what's interesting is that the modern codification of laws uh, for lewd and lascivious conduct and sodomy were sort of um, enacted in the 1870s. So in Boston, in Massachusetts, as they were in other states. Yeah. Uh, oral sex, I think, was cr- newly criminalized in that period, yeah, too. Yeah, and But it sounds like the the actual prosecution rate, the, the arrest rate, was pretty low, even though there were these new crimes on the books. Yes, and, and that too is interesting, because that wasn't the case in other cities. I mean, um, at the by then, New York and San Francisco, which is considered to be you know, the, a very liberal city today, right, obviously, had huge numbers of arrests. Hmm. And in Boston, though, it's a little bit complicated because a lot of people were just arrested for uh, disorderly conduct rather than anything definite, you know, under the sex laws. So there's probably more prosecution arrests than we thought that, that's in, that we could identify in the record. But still, for the most part, the number of arrests were tiny. Some years, I think, I think one year there was no more than, than seven arrests for, you know, same-sex crimes in all of uh, Boston, right? Uh, you know, that's that's a tiny number compared to other places. So it seems like there was, even for lower class folks, um, maybe you weren't accepted as much, but there was probably less repression. So before this golden age comes to an end, where where is gay life in Boston happening during this, this time period? It looks like, from we tell from the evidence, that uh, the gay life was on the backside of Beacon Hill, down into Scully Square, and then along the waterfront. Again, it's hard to see things. In other cities, there were, in Chicago, there was a big crackdown on boys who sold newspapers. And they were apparently were being um, used for prostitution as well. And so we have this extensive thing of folks being arrested and where men were and where men were hanging out. In Boston, because there weren't any arrests, you really don't find as much, but it looks pretty much like the backside of Beacon Hill down at Scully Square and then over to the north end of the waterfront with the places that people who were looking for folks of the same sex could go to. It was very hard for women because women weren't really allowed to go out by themselves at night. All right, and that wasn't anything to do with being a lesbian. That was just being a woman in the late 19th century. You couldn't, there's very little social freedom for anybody. Right. And then for upper class folks of both sexes, you know, women could go to the theater if they were accompanied by other women. Well, single women couldn't go. Um, single, matter of fact, so many single women did go to the theater that they, but they were, that was a great place for uh, prostitution. But talking about upper class women, 
they could meet each other as, and men could meet each other at the theater was the other great place to go. Oh, and, and the other places became, um, for men, became hotel bars. So the um, Copa de Plaza Hotel, the Vendome Hotel at the time, and a few others became notorious um, sort of, you know, basically gay bars at a time. <laughs> a time when that term hadn't even been invented yet. Right, right. Toward the end of your cha- your first chapter on this this golden age, you sort of you tease the end of this age with two parallel trends that were happening. First, you had this um, an article in uh, a predecessor to the New England Journal of Medicine, the the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, that starts to basically pathologize uh, homosexuality and gender nonconformity, and says that. LGBTQ people should be locked up either in jail or mental institutions. And then at roughly the same side, same, same time, you have Havelock Ellis is publishing a book that's arguing that same sex desires are perfectly natural and can happen to anyone. But it seems like the, that sympathetic treatment was almost as damaging as this sort of more medical approach to, to gay life. Yeah, it was a very interesting thing. Now, recall that the Puritans didn't consider anybody to be gay. They just considered people who fell to temptation. So right, Everybody was tempted. Everybody was tempted in different ways. Right, and that they just happened to be tempted that way. So you could commit same-sex acts, but that said nothing about you as a person. Then... Starting in the, at the end of the 19th century in his various ways, um, both proponents and other folks, they began to argue that no, that people who engage in same-sex activities are inherently different. There's something inside them or part of them that makes them different than other folks. And sometimes, like with, with Havelock Ellis, they would argue that this was perfectly fine and why are you being mean to them? And why are you locking them up? And why are you making it illegal for something that's just inherently a part of them and just natural? Or, or then you would have the doctors and it became quite common throughout the medical profession that whatever that is is inside them is a pathological thing. And therefore, those people need to be either contained or destroyed. So in a, in a sense, this beginning of an idea that people who engage in same-sex behaviors are different ultimately help destroy this golden age. Because rather than, you know, having the, you know, you could have a, you know, two women over for dinner and, you know, wasn't it nice that they were witty and they were well-read and played the piano and everything else? You're like, oh, these two women are sick. And why would we have them in our house? Right. Um, right. Similarly with the men. And was it, if you found out your son or your loved one did something. It wasn't just, oops, you know, why were they doing that? Were they drunk? You know, have you ever, you know, was they the too close with their friends? No, there was something wrong with him and therefore disown him, you know, get him out of your house before you affect the other children, the kind of thing. Ugh. I said, it was always very sad. Yeah, there are a few points in, in your book where I could hardly read it with a dry eye. And, and a lot of that comes a, a little later. Parts, Dealing with the AIDS crisis was just really difficult to read. Uh, when I do a public reading, I cannot read from the AIDS years. It's still too, you know, I'm, I'm of that generation. Yeah, I actually graduated from Harvard on June 5th, 1981, 
which was the day that the CDC and their morbidity mortality. Team, oh, wow. Um, you know, um, first acknowledged first, that yeah, there is a mentioned it. Right. So I'm really of that generation. Right. Um, and, uh, like I was reading the, I'm, I'm going to go see what I was reading the, the play, the inheritance by Matthew Lopez. That's playing in New York. And I'm like, Oh God, yeah, you know, I really did live through all this. Right. And writing the book, right. Um, writing about the AIDS crisis, I went to the History Project and they have all these, uh, a guy collected all these obituaries. And they're not all just from AIDS, but most of them are clearly people from Boston who died of AIDS. And I just sort of randomly took some so I could just put names on it, right? And oh my God, it was just horrendous. And then I and then I did, you know, using my, my epidemiological training, uh, I have a doctorate in, ep- in epidemiology, environmental epidemiology, I actually try to put a number on, you know, what percentage of gay men in those generations died. And it was about 10%. And that might seem, well, it was only 10%, but that's more than, let's say, um, the number of men, the percent of men who in, from France who died in World War One. Um, right. I mean, we're talking really of a, of a, of a societal catastrophe. You know, it's that big, right? And there were people, people make it sound like everybody died. Most people lived, fortunately. But if you think about 10% of, of everybody you're close with have died, right? It's just, it was, and you didn't, there was no, when you're in the middle of it, you didn't know who was going to die. You didn't know if you were going to die. It just was just this, this horror. And then have to ride it, right? It was just very difficult. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and the complete, lack of of knowledge at the time on anybody's part um not even knowing what you were what to worry about and then seeing i was a uh, a teenager even younger during a lot of that and you know it was the air oh you're gonna get AIDS from a toilet seat don't touch the whatever that janie taught you know right, the complete right. ignorance out in the world of what hiv aids was yeah we didn't you know you didn't know that was the, the fear yeah it's it's hard to write to convey to people the, the fear, the panic, right? And yet you had to get up every day and go to work, right? Because you couldn't just give up on life, right? Though some people did, and, and the, the, the psychological scars are still there. But you just didn't know what was going to happen, right? And there was no cure. Matter of fact, at the beginning, you didn't even know what caused it, right? And then when you did, you found it was a virus. It's like, well, how was it spread, right? And, and, you know, and who, and you, you know, I guess, you know, a lot of folks panicked and, well, let's, you know, uh, quarantine all homosexuals, one politician said. But, you know, that wasn't an option if you were gay, right? You, you really, you know, you can't just sort of take yourself out of society of all your friends and folks you know and people you hang out with. And then they all started getting sick sick and you know and you know what could you do you didn't know what you didn't know how to protect yourself you had a government that didn't seem to be doing anything in terms of research um you had drug companies that seemed to be all just well maybe we can make some money off of this but maybe we won't even do it and and we'll see how expensive we could be um do you think boston's reaction to the epidemic was different than other cities or was it pretty typical of how municipalities were reacting at the time. Well, it was different, actually, in a number of ways. One is that even under Kevin White, who was the mayor 
up until 1983. I guess he left office in January 1, 1984. He, but really a throwback to an, an earlier generation. Yeah, yeah. He was this old style sort of. Well, actually, it was an old style. He was a he was a one of like progressive young liberal, you know, like John Lindsay um, mm-hmm. of New York. I mean, Combined with an old Irish machine politics kind of thing, right? Who could, Wheeler dealer, getting things done. He he and he wanted to control everything in the city. He was kind of a, a character. He had, he had been the first mayor of any big city that I could find anywhere, and and I've continued this research as the book is out. He was the first big city mayor to go into a gay bar to campaign for votes. Um, I, the book includes a picture of him looking terrified. <laughs> at, this, at this one bar, like, like, oh my God, I just want to, you know, it has nothing to do with AIDS or anything because this, this is 1979. But he's just like, oh my God, where am I? What am I doing here? Right. <laughs> but he did. He went into this bar and campaigned, right? So when the AIDS crisis hit, he had gay support and he immediately said that um, his, he was also the first big city mayor to appoint a uh, liaison to the gay and lesbian community that the city was going to do everything they, they could to make lives better for folks. That's in contrast, let's say, to New York, where you had Mayor Koch, who was rumored to be gay, but would never do anything, would ne- just seem to be reluctant to let the city get involved in the fight for AIDS. In, in contrast, in Boston, you had immediately the Boston Housing Authority looking for looking to do what they needed for people who needed housing. You had, at the time, it was City Hospital looking what they can do to, you know, provide care for people with AIDS. Uh, you had the mayor's office in general looking to help with discrimination. So you had city government on your side from the very beginning. And I think that made a big difference. Even as, and, San Francisco- and that continues, though, even uh, as Kevin White is ushered out and Ray Flynn, who's v- was a very, very different personality and different sort of political outlook comes in. And he was the same way. Actually, I should say that I was an aide in the uh, mayor's office for those years. So, yeah. um, But um, he had folks like Anne McGuire, uh, a lesbian woman, very, very close ties throughout the LGBTQ community, coordinating um, the city's response. And Again, after um, Flynn left, left office, uh, Mayor Medina, the same thing continued. The city of uh, Boston, um, whatever you want to say about its government over these years, was compassionate and thought everybody was part of the city. It was all gay, gay people. We could let race be a different issue, whatever. But that gay people were constituents in need of services and therefore the city would do whatever they could for them. The other issue that made Boston different is we didn't have the big moral issues inside the gay community that they had, let's let's say, in San Francisco. If you read um, Randy Schultz's book and the band played on, San Francisco was people moved to San Francisco to have have sex. Uh, Men men moved, gay men moved to San Francisco, actually. Heterosexual people in the San Francisco. I was going to say, I think everybody yeah. moved to San Francisco to have sex. Yeah, back, back in the 60s and 70s before tech ruined the city by making it more normal. Um, 
But so San Francisco had bathhouses and people who would just see how many, you know, they wouldn't even take minimum wage jobs so they could have devote their days and nights to having as many sex partners uh, in general. Boston has never been a fun city. It never had a <laughs> big nightlife. It did have a bathhouse, but a bathhouse, a bathhouse that as far as I never met anybody who ever went to it. We had it at its height, maybe two dozen gay bars, but most of them were pretty small. And also, we didn't have back rooms where people were having stuff. It just was a very um, tame. tame city. So, you immediately knew, you didn't have this moral thing that, well, AIDS was a disease of promiscuity, and AIDS was a disease that was, you know, some sort of caused by immorality of too much sex. In New York, also, you had all sorts of stuff. And you had Larry Kramer saying that gay men were just too promiscuous, and that's what they had to stop. Well, in Boston, that was silly. No one had, no one was having that much sex. Um, that's not why people moved to Boston. People moved to Boston so they could be in relationships and, and you know, be, live quiet lives, I guess. So you didn't have that moral peace. And so San Francisco was, was split by whether we should shut the bathhouses or not. Well, in Boston, there was one, and... Okay, you shut it down. Zone, but, I think but, but everybody knew that wasn't was going to be an issue. Everybody knew that almost from the beginning that AIDS was not a problem of promiscuity; it was a disease. We don't blame people who get the flu. They got the flu because they spend too much time in public places. You, you, you knew just you could tell from who got sick that it wasn't this wild place that. And this was God's retribution for people having too much fun. It was just a disease. So that also made Boston different. We didn't have those splits. There was a little bit. Some people sort of sort of say, well, gay men have to start be behaving. But everybody knew that was just, you know, silly. And so we didn't have those disputes. And that allowed folks to do other things. Boston was already a center for medical research. And MGH for being one of the best hospitals in the world, was not providing the standard of care for AIDS people that it should have. And there were other hospitals in town that did have that reputation. I think uh, BMC, City Hospital at the time, sounds like built that reputation yes. of, and of the best, giving quality care. And the, be- and the Deaconess Hospital. Deaconess, right, right. And even the Brigham wasn't big on it, but they were doing the right thing. But MGH wasn't even providing the standard of care. So there were a lot of demonstrations against MGH to get them to change how they were doing things. Would that have been ACT UP? Yes. Or would that have been before ACT it UP? It was ACT UP. Part of the problem in Boston was who were you, gonna, who were you going to have demonstrations against, right? Uh, even though Boston was becoming a big bi- biomedical research place, there weren't that many targets, right? You had, Harvard, you had Harvard Medical School was a target. You could protest at the federal building, which people did. Um, people protested at the, the Cathedral of the Holy Cross for the Catholic Church's response. We, we didn't have that many targets, right? MGH became a big target because they were providing the standard of care that they should have. Um, so just take a, a second, if you don't mind, just remind our listeners what ACT UP was and then locally what, what their goals were. So we have ACT UP, the Ace Coalition to Unleash Power, founded in New York City by Larry Kramer that inspired similar uh, local groups across the country. And it was founded out of this rage and anger that you had institutions and government who were ignoring the AIDS crisis because it was a crisis of gay people. Boston chapter started 
um, fairly soon after the New York chapter, and they began to look at who they could push that rage to make change, to, make, to begin the process of addressing the epidemic. Like in New York, where you could protest places that were promoting immorality, we didn't have that. In places where you might go to the local city hall and protest, and there were uh, one or two protests at city hall, but the city was doing everything it could to make the lives of people with AIDS um, sort of as good as much as you could do in a situation where there was no medical cure for anything and your decline was sort of inevitable. So they protested at the federal building, but you know we're not center of the federal government like Washington, D.C. was. Most of the medical infrastructure in Boston was doing the right thing. The two exceptions were um, Mass General Hospital, which wasn't providing the standard of care that even in the days when you couldn't do a lot, that people knew what you needed to do. Um, they were much more conservative. They said, well, you know, we've heard case reports out of San Francisco that this works, but we're not going to do that yet. Well, that's hmm. wrong. And then you also had Harvard Medical School, which was part of this whole, you know, why aren't they doing more to address the needs of the AIDS epidemic? And those were the two probably biggest targets. The ACT UP group in Boston had that problem that everybody was doing the right thing. It was just this frustration and anger that it wasn't enough. Right. When you see the fatality rate rising and rising throughout the, the course of the 80s and nothing is working, even if the city and the, the hospitals, the doctors are doing what they can, just that futile rage, it seems like. Yeah. I, I mean, find we, some outlet. And, you know, also, I guess that's to be mentioned in this is the Fenway Health Center, which was founded by gay people, gay and lesbian people. And though it served a lot of folks who are not LGBTQ, was a great provider of care to the community. You know, they were. I mean, they really come out. It seems like they come out as one of the a, a truly heroic organization of this this era, just in terms of everything they tried to do for the LGBTQ community, and then specifically people with HIV/AIDS. Yeah, you know, and they had a very as a community based health center that was very that was founded on radical principles. They had this sort of changed themselves in, uh, in the 70s to survive. This is pre-AIDS, so they were finally getting their sort of ducks in order. The, they were getting certified as a clinic. They were attracting doctors. They were figuring out how to bill for um, treatment so that they could stay sound financially. And then they just got slammed by this epidemic. And they really did rise to the occasion. Thankfully, right? It's, it's, it's frightening to think what would have happened in Boston if they didn't. And there wasn't a lot again, before 96 with the um, introduction of a triple therapy where you could make AIDS into a controlled disease. There wasn't a lot that you could do. On the other hand, they did whatever they could. And they also participated in trials that eventually led to the um, introduction of these therapies that did finally control the disease. It was, there were people who did not rise to the occasion. Even, I point out, there's a, there was an institution in the community, uh, the Gay Community News, which was this newspaper of fabulous um, professional coverage run by amateurs and volunteers, national. If, if anybody's interested, a lot of their archives are available online. You can read back issues of Gay Community News pretty easily. And yet, when the, the epidemic began in 1981, they didn't take it seriously. 
it was like, oh, it's a disease of, you know, wealthy gay men and, you know, you know, maybe it's capitalism's revenge or something, right? I, I don't, I wouldn't even, I, I wouldn't even pretend to understand what was going on there. And, and the people who I know who look back at that time are, I guess, embarrassed. And they can't explain what they did wrong either. It took them until maybe three or four years into the epidemic before they started to actually cover it. Well, even on, on the, f- on the flip side, do you think other than Fenway Health, are there organizations or people from that era that, that do deserve um, a special recognition for, for reacting well? Yeah. Um, Larry Kessler, who founded AIDS Action um, Committee, and um, he sort of got a group of volunteers together very early in the epidemic in 1982. And I think there were only like a dozen cases at the time in all of Massachusetts. They eventually went back and looked at records and realized that people had been dying of AIDS in Massachusetts back into the 70s. You start, you, people just didn't recognize the syndrome of diseases, of symptoms that were part of this. But anyway, so Larry uh, really brought folks together. And it wasn't just him. Out. I think AAC had hundreds of employees and volunteers and Bar owners would have um, fundraisers. You know, I, I tried at first to quantify what percentage of folks in the in the community actually helped work on AIDS, and it really became apparent that virtually everybody did. They either directly cared for somebody with AIDS, they would donate to fundraisers, they would donate time to either the Fenway AAC. Um, a couple other organizations that were working on these issues. It was really something where everybody that that time, and not just gay men, but also lesbians, really worked hard to do their best in the epidemic. I think the other person that deserves great um, special recognition is a woman named Alice Foley, who was the uh, town nurse in Provincetown, who helped bring together folks um, to meet the challenges of the epidemic. Provincetown probably had the single highest death rate um, of any place in the country from AIDS. Yeah, we haven't focused as much in, in this interview on Provincetown just because this is a, a Boston-focused podcast, but that much much of the book is focused on Provincetown in this period and realizing how deeply cut Provincetown was by the AIDS epidemic. Um, there's another passage that was just really hard to read in the book to see. And it's a town that, that might have lost one in every 10 people to AIDS. Yeah, it was just um, and every person in Provincetown, the, the AIDS support group, decided that they were not going to die alone, that they would be surrounded by folks who would you know, provide them with compassion and love. I think that's the other piece in that um, again, we talk about, you know, who should we thank? It's these thousands of volunteers, right, who would just hold the hands of folks and would do things for folks. I, I'll tell you one personal story that's not in the book. Um, a friend of mine died in 94, and um, most of his stuff, you know, his, his personal things, right, where, you know, some of his family took back and some of his friends kept. But at the end of the day, there were about three or four bags of junk that needed to be thrown out. And I was working at the mayor's office at the time and one of my friends called up to say, we can't get rid, we can't get 
anybody to take the garbage from the house, the rubbish, right? The um, uh, apartment complex owner said that it was hazardous waste. I'm not sure why an old pillowcase would be hazardous waste, but whatever, whatever. And so eventually I got uh, some public works guys uh, just to come in and pick up the garbage, right? But that was what everybody was faced with. Uh, every caretaker was faced with these just multiple of daily things that we take for granted. You know, getting the garbage out. You couldn't, maintenance people wouldn't take your garbage. You know, it was just, and yet somehow folks got it all done. By the, I guess the late 90s, the mid to late 90s, as some of the drug cocktails became more effective and, and HIV AIDS became, instead of an immediate death sentence, it became a disease that you could live with. It sounds like LGBTQ culture really started to change at that point. But before we, before we sort of move into the 1990s, I actually want to back up to really an interesting era that we glossed over. And that was sort of the, the decline of that first golden age of gay Boston. So we, we had spent a lot of time talking about some of the personalities and the life in that golden age, but we didn't really talk about what happened. How did the coming of World War I change Boston's LGBTQ life? It, it had a tremendously negative, horrible impact. Prior to World War One, it was it was really kind of a wide open city. People could do whatever they want, more or less. There, there were there were constraints. Obviously, we were still we didn't want to scare the horses. I guess is the term you use, right? <laughs> um, but in World War One, the federal government decided to crack down on immorality in cities across the country with the uh, rationale that you know they needed to keep servicemen uh, ready to to fight in the war, and so. Not just against gay people, but there was a big crackdown nationally against prostitution. Most cities in the United States prior to World War I were pretty lax in enforcing anti-prostitution laws. And most cities had red light districts, I guess you'd say. Um, Chicago had a notorious one, New York, San Francisco, and Boston did as well. The Secretary of the Navy was, giving, was given um, responsibility for ending that. And it became not just a sort of anti-prostitution, anti-drinking thing, because that was also a part of it as well, but it quickly morphed in, in most cities into an anti-gay um, movement as well. And in Boston, it was, it was very explicit. Some representatives from the, uh, the Secretary of the Navy's office came into City Hall, had a meeting with the mayor, and said, if you don't crack down on prostitution and immorality in your city, we are going to nationalize your police force and do it ourselves. Um, it was that explicit. So based upon that, the police in Boston first went after, uh, announced this big crackdown on prostitution that with a day or two turned into an anti-gay sort of witch hunt where they would arrest any man on the street that they thought looked gay and close down all the gay bars and everything else um, quite quickly. Um, they also started putting secret agents, uh, I guess you call undercover policemen, who would go into houses and if they found gay people there or congregating there, they would also arrest them. And it was quite remarkable what it did to the city. Um, it shut down everything uh, that you know, was going on. And for months, people were afraid to go outside even. 
that was accompanied by a big crackdown at the at Newport, Rhode Island, at the at the um, the Navy, the Navy base, base in Newport, and then um, it continued after the war. Morality in general had changed in the sort of by the I guess the pressures of the war. So the part of the cumulative whole thing was a um, purge, basically, of gay people at Harvard, and they were expelled for being gay and not just expelled the registrar's office was was instructed to tell anybody who let's say if another school wanted to find out was this person really a student there and read the transcripts that this person was expelled for being gay if an employer wanted to verify that a person went to school there to tell them they were expelled for being gay which meant these poor men were targeted for life so you had this series of things the the, the undercover police the purges in the street, the military purge, and then the Harvard purge, and all that together just slammed the door shut in, uh, starting in 1918 and ending in 1920. Just a series of, um, repressive things that completely changed the way people, uh, particularly, uh, the lesbians and gay men who had been, um, sort of free to do what they want were suddenly no longer allowed. It really completely changed the whole nature of uh, gay society in Boston for me, one that was fairly open to one that was extremely closeted. And it seems like that closeting, that being driven underground, lasted for decades through pretty much the Stonewall era. Yeah, really. It began to relax in the 60s before Stonewall, but really, you're really talking... A 50-year period, you know, two generations of people, I guess, who lived in tremendously um, homophobic times, right? You know, it, and it wasn't just the government. You know, you had families who were just horrendous to any of their children who were found to be sexually or gender nonconforming. People tell, uh, uh, for example, one poor guy, his parents found out, he was gay, so they called up his employer to get him fired. That was the kind of thing that happened in those 50 years. Um, pretty horrendous. It does sound like through the 1950s, there's this a sort of a tension on sort of like a gay panic pulling from one side and then a little bit of a loosening on the other side as, as a bar scene starts to develop during and, and right after World War II. What were bars like? What were LGBTQ bars like in the couple decades um, starting during and then right after World War II? Well, yeah, Boston you know, was different than other cities. It was actually in its own way more liberal, um, in part because alcohol licenses were done by the state, not by the city, and they never became political issues like they did in other places. Um, so it wasn't like in New York or San Francisco where you might have a mayor running for office or for re-election, so he does a crackdown on gay on gay bars to show that he's strong on morality. Mayor Curley never cared. The, the great Mayor Curley of all those years didn't really care. It never became an issue in city government. Um, so as long as you, the patrons behave in very, very explicitly rigid ways, bars were allowed to be, um, to flourish. Um, so you weren't allowed to have same-sex dancing and you weren't allowed to have anybody cross-dressing. But as long as you did that, you were pretty much could, could be open. And so like in San Francisco, again, when you think of that as being a big gay mecca, it was rare before Stonewall for a bar to be open for more than a year or so because it was 
illegal to have gay people even, even congregate in a bar. In Boston, that was not a problem. And even though, again, we have the, we have the, the U.S. military trying to get the city to crack down on gay bars, we have the um, woman named Mary Driscoll, who was the head of the Alcohol um, Beverage Commission, say, no, as long as our bars are conforming with our laws and regulations, we are going to allow them to be open. There's no law in Massachusetts or Boston that specifically says you can't have gay people. In New York, it was illegal to serve a gay, gay person a drink. So one of the first political <laughs> actions was actually a bar called Julius, where a, a group of openly gay men at the time, the in the 60s, when in, this is before Stonewall, went in and just ordered a drink. And that was one of the first political acts in New York. Boston, you couldn't do that because you had these bars and they were at times quite wild. There was a, a gentleman named Phil Bayonne who weighed about oh, 350 pounds or so, a very large man. And on, he had the bar uh, where the uh, transportation building is now uh, called 12 Carver. And he would, uh, Saturday night, he would uh, be kind of wasted. And he would get up onto this swing with this big straw hat with ribbons on it and uh, say, uh, it's time for Papa to swing. And get into this, this swing, suspended from the ceiling, and sing in the good old summertime. And one witness, Bargoa says that if, if that swing had collapsed, he would have killed 300 people. <laughs> but he was a character. And, and the bars were like that. And even right after World War II, a bar opened in Park Square, so long it was taken by um, Urban Renewal, um, called the Punch Bowl that started off small but kept acquiring the sort of the spaces on either side of the basement. And by the time it closed in 67, there'd be lines down the street, uh, people to get in. It, it became quite the wild place. But again, you weren't allowed to have dancing. So the first bar to have same-sex dancing was a place called the Midtown, where the Charles Theater is now. They would flash the lights, and men would go, you know, find women partners that did break apart and sit down, whatever. And so the police would come in, and they would do, they would check IDs. And what you would do is you would have like a $5 bill with your driver's license, and you'd hand it to them to check your ID. If you didn't have an ID, they would take you away and, and who knows, oftentimes abuse um beat up the men or sometimes rape the women or there were rumors of that. But if you, as long as you had an ID and that $5, you were safe and you'd give it to them and they would do that. Um, but they would read about once a month and the Midtown only had dancing on Thursday. So it was only, you know, you know so one times out of four, you would be raided. Um, and then similarly at the, the Punch Bowl was the second place that started to have dancing. And again, it was the same situation. You would have it in the basement so you could flash the lights. All that began in the early 60s, mid-60s, even before Stonewall. Um, certainly with It's the, also an era when what they called uh, homophile organizations started to spring up around Boston, too. And some of the early activists, um, I think, were cutting their teeth at that time. It was Charles Shively, Prescott Townsend, yeah, people like Boston that. Became, because of its universities and also because of – well, Prescott Townsend was an old Yankee family scion. They began in the 1950s. There was political action in Boston, people meeting to try to figure out ways of making life better for um, gay people. And in one sense, they seem kind of timid from our perspective, but the bravery that represents was incredible. Boston benefited by its many colleges and universities, so you'd have young men, women, folks, uh, whoever 
coming in and being away from their families, they, you know, that began that process that they could come out publicly and to themselves. So you were, Boston was taking in these young people from all over the place and, ooh, I'm away from home for the first time. No one's going to know what I'm doing. And they benefited from that very strongly. And that provided this whole group of activists who began to do things in the 50s and 60s, even before Stonewall. But once Stonewall happened, that was sort of like the match. And then, so they really had large numbers of people. But at one point, they called it the Boston Mafia. Almost every national gay organization had people with Boston connections who had gone to school here or became activists while they were here. Oh. Yeah, you almost make the the period between Stonewall and the outbreak of the the AIDS crisis sound like a a second golden age. The social scene starts to come back out of the underground, more able to live openly. Um, people are starting to develop what we'd probably consider trans identities today. What do you think that decade or two? Uh, what's the importance of that era? So that time between. 1969 to 1981, between Stonewall and the beginning of the AIDS crisis, was a time when nationally gay people, lesbian people, and to a certain extent trans people, not, not as much, began to really feel they could do anything. Um, there were still limits. There were a lot of places that you could lose your job, um, etc. But on the one hand, it was kind of this vast, don't ask, don't tell world. So, you know, you, maybe you went, you were a lawyer, when you were there, you had to act very conformist. But, you know, at night, on weekends, you could do anything you wanted. They called it wearing masks, right? You could wear the mask when you were at work, but then come the weekend or come 5 o'clock, you could take off the mask and you could pretty much do whatever you want. And you found this huge flowering social life. And it was, bars were, really became bigger. The number of bars exploded from about 7 to about 20 at any given time, 60 to 20, any given moment, you know, you had this big explosion of nightlife. But it was also a big explosion of organizations. You had, you know, sports leagues, you had cultural activities, uh, virtually every kind of activity that people do, you had a club for it. Uh, so you had this huge infrastructure of folks doing all sorts of fun things. And also be- a beginning of acknowledging that there were parts of LGBTQ life that needed to have action to support. So, you know, it wasn't just that you had more bars, you also began to have sobriety organizations that focused on the needs of uh, either gender nonconforming or sexually nonconforming people. You had the Fenway Health Center founded because, the, you know, the mainstream medical profession was so nasty to gay people. You had a counseling service um, that was started for gay people um, because... So they are uh, uh, Bagley's founded in that, yeah, right, for I think, you, in the yeah. first GSAs. Uh, all this support system and social system that just flourished. It seemed like everybody was doing everything. It's a little bit before my time. It really looked like there was this tremendous social explosion um, of people who had spent their... A generation that spent their early years, you know, just hoping no one would ever know what they were like, to suddenly being able to be sort of public in a, in a, inside the gay community. There were still strict standards and by our life today, but you really, you kept it quiet, you know, you went to work, but 
that you might write, and you kept it quiet from your parents, usually. But inside the gay world, you could do almost anything and be whoever you wanted. It was the second golden age where, where inside the gay world, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted. I mean, there was, if you wanted, if you had some kind of taste or some kind of commitment to something, there was a group for you. So yeah, there was, uh, you know, there was a time when everything seemed possible, right? And no one knew exactly how things were going to turn out, but it did seem like, you know, so much could be done, and so many different organizations started and proliferated. And then you write that everything changed on that June day in 1981 with the report first uncovering this strange new disease. And we've delved into that dark era um, a good bit already, but Boston eventually came out the other end of the AIDS crisis in the, the, the late 90s. And that set the stage for marriage. The AIDS crisis helped set the stage for for marriage, along with the fact that you had a lot of same-sex couples that were starting families. And it was a little bit easier for lesbians to, to have a family than for gay men, but gay men actually began to adopt, or they had kids from prior marriages. And they ran into these tremendous legal difficulties. You know, if you wanted to have your spouse pick up your child... You couldn't do it because they weren't. If somebody got injured and it was at the hospital. So you had these two tremendously uh, social changing things. One was AIDS because uh, one of the, th- I mentioned already the um, obituaries. One of the saddest things is that people didn't have words to describe their lifelong partner. Now you would say husband or wife. Then it was like his longtime companion, you know, met by his good friend and emotional partner. You know, whatever. Um, you had cases of people died without the, you know, uh, wills and stuff or without leaving their um, wishes explicit. And sometimes even if they did, you had people ignoring them. And you'd have you know, a couple living together, only, uh, living in a house together, and suddenly one partner would find themselves evicted because they worked on the lease. So they didn't, they weren't co-owner, but you couldn't put the, your second person on the, on the mortgage kind of thing. And so you had this horrible, horrible consequences of AIDS and what, what it did to the survivors and what it did to the families and what it did to folks trying to get medical care and all these other things, plus the pressures that were coming up on families that couldn't conform to the, the social piece of uh, what we allow families to do that, that even two unmarried people can do. And then the third thing was that you had an opposition in the state legislature to any kind of liberalization. It took 15 years, maybe longer, to get a anti-discrimination law passed. And they were adamant after that, the conservatives, that nothing else was going to pass. So you couldn't even get domestic partner benefits for public employees in the state. You had this all this opposition. So you had this desire for a way of legal recognition to make lives easier for couples, for families, along with this sort of nasty blocking of any kind of legislation by a few key legislators, which was interesting because the most of the rank and file were, would have voted in favor of these things, did vote in favor of these things, and then the, the, the Senate leadership or the House leadership would squelch it and keep it from, from passing because of legislative maneuvering. And in that context, the idea that 
we should go for marriage emerged. Also, we had a tremendously uh, well-led organization called GLAD, then called Gay, Lesbian, Advocates and Defenders. It began in 1978, also this golden age of activism, when gay men were being harassed in um, the Boston Public Library and elsewhere for being gay. They would be just hauled off for I saw him do something rude and illegal. The guy goes, all I'll do is read the book, right? You know, at the table. So Glad started. And by um, the end of the 90s, it was this very polished organization uh, on a shoestring budget, but really great people. They had like a woman named Mary Bonato, who, working in concert with others, said, you know, this is the time we need to file a lawsuit that will allow same-sex marriage, which they filed, I believe, in 2000 and. Two, I believe the lawsuit was finally filed. I could be wrong. It's in the book. And that's the lawsuit that becomes the Goodrich decision. Yes. And it became the first state in the country that um, allowed same-sex marriage. I moved to Boston kind of in the middle of that era. So I moved to Boston in 97, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, so I I was vaguely at least – I was aware of the fight as it was go- going on, but going back and reading about that period in the book, I've very much discounted how much opposition continued to happen after the decision. And I, I don't think at the time I was aware, at least I didn't remember the fact that there was a constitutional convention in 2004 to try to overturn Godrich. Yeah, it was, you know, the court decision was just the beginning of the struggle in one sense, or maybe it was sort of marked the half point. But that struggle to keep that decision alive consumed both sides for maybe the next five years. Um, and the first thing was, if marriage was a constitutional right in the Massachusetts Constitution, then you could overturn it with a constitutional amendment. They actually tried to overturn it with a simple law, and even before they could get that passed, which it would not have passed, the Supreme Judicial Court said no, that would not be the case. They also tried to substitute suddenly um, domestic partner benefits, civil unions, I guess you'd say. Just don't call it marriage. Right, just don't call it marriage. That failed for two reasons. One is for same-sex couples. That wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be accepted by the federal government. It wouldn't be filed in other states. It was really not separate but equal. It was very unequal. And also, the opponents of same-sex marriage didn't want any recognition of same-sex couples. So it was too liberal for them. So it failed from both sides. So we had a constitutional convention. And I mentioned a few minutes ago that efforts for legalization and whatnot were stymied by this leadership that would use every kind of parliamentary maneuver to prevent laws that would make lives of LGBTQ people better. Because they didn't have the votes, they would just try to use all these maneuvers. Well, the lobbyists for the community learned from that, and they started to use the same kinds of maneuvers to stop the Constitutional Convention. Um, it almost ended up in a sort of a filibuster, the convention. Yeah, right? and actually, that to me was one of the, the the high led to one of the high points in the whole um, history. You actually you describe going into the the end of that convention. There's a, a moment when uh, I think to continue the to keep it going another day would have required a unanimous vote. And you say that that evening was, quote, 
perhaps the most emotional and important outburst in the history of LGBTQ Boston. So, so what was that moment? Well, it was a parliamentary maneuver. They needed to stop the convention. They needed to end it. And there was a tremendous amount of emotion and crowds filling the, the state house. But after 12 hours of all this, the, the opponents went away. And, but there was still a need and everyone was exhausted. So it came from the state house. But, but now we have, you know, better uh, technology. You know, we get that texting on phones and cell phones and everything else. And the first calls went to Club Cafe. Just anybody who knew somebody was there said, um, can we get more people to the state house? Well, it quickly became sort of a telephone tree, right? Everybody was calling everybody. I think we got like uh, seven or eight phone calls from various friends. Can you get to the state house right away? We were actually out of town that day. But we got seven or eight phone calls. And people just from wherever they could in the Boston area flooded to the state house. And there's a dispute in the LGBTQ community about whether or not marriage was a real grassroots thing or just something that upper class white cisgender gay men wanted. And one of the reasons why I wrote it so in depth about that night was that it was everybody who, everybody went there. It was a grassroots thing. It was something that folks wanted. And they, to defend marriage, they did flood that state house. You know, from every home, people just went to, you know, and it succeeded in one sense. It, it, it the amendment was defeated that year, but then it kind of re-emerged and they had to fight it again. The other interesting thing about the fight to save same-sex marriage was that Boston doesn't have a big evangelical community, so we didn't have that kind of opposition that you have, let's say, in other states and other places. The other thing, the Catholic Church, yeah, it was the and the Catholic Church was the big um, opponent, but the but the Catholic Church had destroyed itself, almost completely destroyed itself, I should say, with the whole um, child abuse scandals. So it was kind of back on its heels. So the vast amount of religious activism around gay marriage was in support of same-sex marriage. And that, to me, that's became fascinating. Tie it back to the Puritans, right? Because it was led by Unitarians, Congregationalists, um, Reformed um, Jewish congregations, and others who came together in a religious coalition of freedom of marriage. Also, stepping back a second, in the very first gay pride parade, there had been protests in front of St. Paul's uh, Church, their face in the common, uh, about the church's animosity toward religious animosity towards gay people. Well, on the morning of the final big debate over uh, same-sex marriage, this religious freedom for um, the marriage group met at that same place, St. Paul's, and then they marched across the common singing um, hymns, uh, South African him, we are marching in the light of God to the state house to demonstrate um, religious support for same-sex marriage. So this, to me, it's sort of this end of this arc of these Puritans, right, who then, hundreds of years later, are marching in this vanguard to support LGBTQ people. History has a way of you know, zigging and zagging in ways that can't be predicted. People are resilient. And LGBTQ people are resilient. So even at times when 
folks were under the worst repression, they survived and they lived fulfilling lives to the best that they could, that they managed to have fun. They managed to have fulfilled lives oftentimes and under the worst of circumstances. And I don't want everybody just to think, oh, those poor folks, how do they survive? Right, which goes back to thing. the beginning of our conversation and that we don't leave behind documentation of a nice normal day. We leave behind documentation of the best and the worst and not much in between. Exactly. So before I let you go, can you tell our listeners what you might be working on next? What What's coming up for Dr. Russ Lopez? <laughs> I'm doing two things because I never can do one thing at once. One is um, a biography of Isabella Stewart Gardner. Uh, I found through both this book and other work, she was just a fascinating person that has a personality that needs more exploring beyond the, the, I guess, how most people think of her as being this eccentric who collected art. She was actually a very interesting person who had things that are, are worth knowing more about. I'm working on that. And the other piece is I'm working on a novel, not a historical novel, which would make a lot of sense given the fact I've written history, and now I have all these books out, but actually uh, more of sort of a mashup of Great Gatsby and uh, The Grapes of Wrath, set contemporary times where you have a very wealthy, very you know hardworking folks who destroy everything around them, and particularly folks who aren't as wealthy as they are. And for listeners who want to find out more about you or your work, uh, where should they go if they want to follow you online? Um, the best place is probably my Twitter handle, uh, which is hashtag RussonHarrison. And I do have a website called RussLopez.com. All right. Well, Dr. Russ Lopez, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us. Great. Well, thanks for uh, interviewing me. To learn more about the LGBTQ history of Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 167. The book, again, is The Hub of the Gay Universe by Russ Lopez. We'll have a link to Russ's Twitter in the show notes, and we'll make sure to include a link for you to purchase the book as well. And of course, we'll have links to information about Sarah's Long Walk for Equality, this week's upcoming event. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcasting apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more apps. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History Podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History Podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. We'll be back next week with Nikki's author interview about the suffrage movement in Massachusetts. 